Good evening and happy Chinese New Year. <laughs> Just going to get that in quickly before everyone else has joined. I think we did start one minute early today, so going to give that one full minute just in case <laughs> Colin's like shaking his head nah make a start come on <laughs> um okay so my <laughs> as I was doing, saying that someone else just coming to the waiting room okay so good evening my name is Stanford I am a doctor psychiatrist also yoga teacher training with Colin at the moment for yoga therapy Colin we're going to talk about unknown causes tonight right yes um i, I like um we, we came up with this idea we were speaking about um conditions quite a lot you and i i remember we were speaking about them we were talking about um manifestations of conditions and also the evolution of conditions but then there seems to be a huge number of conditions which are classified as cause unknown. So when you come to teach a condition, you speak about it, you say, you know, it affects this person, this age, you know, normally over 50, female, um, it, no, this is serious. You know, it, 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 it would be a number of different sort of qualities or, or classifications. It would be cause unknown. And it's actually quite disturbing that we have the condition, which means that we have the symptoms, we have um, we have numbers of different associations, we understand the pathology, we understand the evolution of the, of the actual condition itself. But the question is, 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 why is the cause unknown? And what does cause unknown mean? How does Western medicine look at cause unknown? Is there a... Um, does cause unknown mean that actually there are so many variables that are involved or is it that we can't actually prove or is it that there are so many different routes to actually getting the condition? How does Western medicine look at it? And also how does yoga look at this as well? Um, is it helpful for us to know a label or a name of a condition or is it unhelpful? And how does knowing the cause of something help us or not help us as well? Because I think there's a tie up within this as well, because sometimes when we get diagnosis and people look for diagnosis on things, it becomes a sort of reassuring to them. And sometimes that can keep us in a trap. But other times what can happen is that having a diagnosis actually starts to create a situation where we sort of dig and dig, try and find the causes for these things. And rather than deal with the situation, we actually spend most of our time looking for the cause rather than actually facing the reality of the situation we're in. So for me, there's a kind of like a whole sort of area around not knowing and cause unknown, which are very interesting. Um, Stanford, could I just just a very small question? Um, could you explain just a little bit more about cause unknown from a Western perspective? Um, very, very small and tiny question and definition, not clearly. Um, I'll, I'll lead with my experience and my reason of choosing this topic. Um, first of which is is actually quite hard to find 
medical condition that's our view <laughs> it's a quite a short list so we don't have a lot to choose from but also I think I share from the, during this webinar before or if you know me personally I've probably spoken about this quite a few times um, in our conversation as well where in the first year of being a medical doctor I actually learn about saying I don't know and being quite a powerful thing so I think if I'm not wrong, it was the first ever time I was on call as a medical F1, which is like foundation year one doctor, like literally baby, baby doctor, like just step out of medical school, like about two, three months ago at that time. And I was running around the hospital like a hellish chicken. I have no idea where I am I'm trying to figure out where the wards are, who the patients are, what the test results are. And halfway through running between a ward, I think between a septic arthritic patient and a patient with really really high blood pressure a family member caught me like literally at the nursing station and she was asking oh my my father I think uh, in bay three bed one been told that he has this diagnosis today what does that mean like why do we we make that diagnosis and what's the treatment plan mean and almost in a state of panic, I have to say, I really was panicking because in one hand I was thinking, oh, that septic arthritis patient needs to have IV antibiotics straight away now. The other hypertensive patient might have a stroke or heart attack at some stage. And here I am having to answer a relative's patient that I have no completely no knowledge of because that is not the ward I usually work on. So in the moment of panic, I did the almost like the unthinkable. It's like, I, I'm so sorry. I tried to have a quick look on the system already, but I have no idea. I, I, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure how they come around to that diagnosis and what's the plan going forward because I simply don't know. And I feel really bad. I'm almost like bracing myself to be told off. And actually the daughter was saying, thank you. That was the first time that, you know, we have an honest answer about what's going on and if you don't know that it's actually fine and at least you're being honest about it and please remember that for the rest of your medical career and here I am remembering for the rest of my medical career at least like about 10 years on I'm still remembering it I graduated around 2013 so coming up to 10 years now and I think that's why I wanted to talk about the unknown because at that point of my life, I spent about what, six, seven years learning about all these causes for medical conditions, genetic, environmental, what the percentage, what is the lifestyle um, risk factors, what things you can do. And then I realized actually, a lot of the time we don't know. So now I try to impart that a little bit to my medical students and say, you know, whenever you read in the medical textbook saying that there's a many, many suggested risk factor or cause for this medical condition, say like the most recent one I've been teaching is Tourette syndrome, where you uncontrollably uh, say words out loud or do movements. It can, it can be a whole host of environmental and genetic factors. I was like, just translating it into layman term, it kind of means that we don't know because Yes, there are a lot of advanced in science, medical research and we have a lot of knowledge nowadays and certain medical conditions like cystic fibrosis where we can really narrow it down to a single gene, a single sequence, a single part of the gene, how the whole thing manifested. But actually a lot of the time, simple things like hypertension where it affects quite a fair amount of adults and sometimes underage, in this world population, we actually called it essential hypertension, like about 90, 95% of it is essential hypertension, which means it started and we don't know why. 
so to answer your tiny tiny question, Colin, I I think that known causes. Sometimes we just say it's just happened. This is the condition. We don't know yet. Satisfied? Always. Thank you very much. Um, thank you. Um, yoga specializes in not knowing. Did you know that? It's kind of interesting. Um, I hadn't actually thought about it too much because I was always looking at it from the other perspective, the other side of it, which is that it focuses on getting some clarity. It focuses on understanding the way that you interact with yourself, the way that you interact with other people. But actually in the reverse, it specializes in not knowing. It places not knowing at the fundamental root of human existence. And it actually provides, and says it's the reason why we have a particular need to categorize, label, reference, identify, to hold on to what we think we know or think we should know in order to feel safe and secure. So it, it means that if not knowing is at the root, it, it can be a very powerful force. It can be a motivational force, but it can also be a very destructive force on the other side of it. And it's the destructive force that I find kind of interesting and not in a weird way, but in a way that when I'm doing work with people, so if I give an example, um, I met this lady recently and she had numbness in her lower arms from, from the elbow right the way through to the hands and from the knees right the way through to the feet. She had this numbness in the lower legs and also in the lower arms. And took her a while to actually begin to walk. And she had stiffness when she begins walking or begin moving. She has difficulty holding things, grasping things. She has a sort of deep pain in these lower joints and sort of pins and needles, tingling, numbness, exhaustion. She can't walk very far. She needs to sit and rest. These are symptoms. And they're symptoms that we know because we've actually experienced them because how we get knowledge on something is we get it in three different ways. We have a direct experience of something. We begin to infer things. So I have pins and needles, so I must have done something to get that. So have I cut my blood circulation off? Is, is there a nerve impinged? What's happened? So that we infer things. Or there's a reference point that we go to, like we go to a medical textbook and we kind of go tingling in here. It must be this, this, and this. So what do we trust with regard to the way we construct our knowing of things. And so yoga sort of breaks our knowing down to these three different ways and also looks at how we create combinations of these things in order to create a reality. Um, and so she's got this experience. She has this experience where she has this numbness and she has this tingling. And for her, you know, the question is, well, you know, what is this? What, what actually, what condition does she have? You know, she starts to get investigated. She goes to a doctor. She gets to refer to a specialist. She starts to have lots of different tests. She goes privately. She goes to NHS. You know, is it MS? Is it fibromyalgia? You know, is there nerve damage? You know, how serious is it? How did it happen? What has she actually done? What's the cause of this? How will it affect her life? How will she cope? Will it get worse? What if she can't move anymore? Why doesn't anyone know what it is and what's caused it? Surely tests would be conclusive. Has anyone else had this? 
So what we start to get is we start to get actually something very interesting with not knowing is that we start to get this process of a combination of things. One is we start to piece together ideas about what something could be or what's caused something, or what something actually is. We use our memory, we use our imagination. We start to begin to filter different facts and we start to Google, we start to ask specialists, we start to try and get different perspectives on things to make a sense of the situation that we're actually in. Because even though we don't have a label on it, we want to put a label on it. We want to know what something is because we won't maybe feel safe about that. So the cause of a condition is unknown. And actually still today, the cause of a condition is still unknown. She's especially she's been to see, have wanted to categorize her under one heading. And she's actually said, look, you're not sure of it. Please don't categorize me under this heading because everyone will treat me as if I have this condition, but you're not sure of this condition and you don't know whether this condition is this and you also don't know the cause of it. So perhaps one day, if we keep it open, we may know what the condition is and perhaps one day if we keep it open, we may know what causes it. So for me, when I'm looking at working with people, I'm understanding that when we put a name to a condition, sometimes they feel much happier, sometimes for a short amount of time. So it can help them to understand a cause. Now, I also think it's kind of interesting because in days of old, you know, in past, past, past times, there were often not many names for conditions. So you'd have a load of different symptoms. And because it wasn't recognizable, what would happen is that you were treated as, you know, not believed or treated as mad. Uh, because actually people didn't understand exactly what was going on with someone. So not knowing in that way can create a huge number of problems. So from my perspective, when I'm starting to look at people, I'm starting to understand the way that they identify with their condition whether they understand the symptoms that they've got, what the reality of that is, where they've got the diagnosis from, has it come from a specialist? Is it something that is definitely set in stone? Is it something they've Googled and said, I've got a herniated disc because I've got pain on this side? And I've gone, have you had an MRI? Have you had it checked out? Do you definitely know the cause of something or are you actually inferring and doing self-diagnosis? So I start to begin to understand a lot more because for me, knowing becomes very important and knowing what we don't know is exceptionally powerful. And that leads back to Stanford's story earlier with regard to him as a medical, you know, junior medical doctor. The power of being able to say that I don't know is huge. Stanford, could I hand to you? Well, I was just thinking, interesting that you're ending towards the point how it is important to find a specialist to confirm the diagnosis or the inferred diagnosis. Because I was looking down on my notes and unknown, like disease of unknown cause sometimes also being called idiopathic. Like it come from, I think, Greek. Idio means one's own and pathic means suffering pathological um so it, it kind of means a disease of its own kind but other otherwise it can also be called essential like in essential hypertension we saw we said already 
primary, which means that's not induced by something else, like primary um, hypothyroidism, primary amenorrhea. And I will almost argue even congenital, you can say this sometime of unknown cause as well, because congenital literally just mean you're born with it. And why are you born with it? You don't know, like learning disability. Why do some children have it? Is it because of the antenatal pregnancy? Is it because of the birth? Is it because postnatally? Or is it a combination of these? I, I We still haven't had one exact course or a few exact course, because sometimes it's not always just one thing. But I think I think the labeling, it is, it is useful. Definitely, it's definitely useful. At least, if nothing else, I have a human being, a human mind like categories. We feel safety when we can put things into category, into boxes, because it, it, it constructs a safety for our mentality, knowing what we're encountering. And from that category, we hopefully then have like a collective evidence, like evidence-based medicine, or at least a behavioral pattern where you know, I've done this before, or someone else have done this before. If you do this, it will work. Like a symptoms, like hypertension, high blood pressure. If you give and um, blood pressure tablets, you will lower down. Rather, it's caused by something or not. Sometimes doesn't matter, but you know how to deal with it. So that's why it's important too. But as I was re reading uh, and researching about it, and also kind of doing my own revision about psychotherapy, it touched on something called like the mentalization therapy, where actually it says sometimes diagnosis, especially for syndrome, is really not useful because it can the labeling can almost over emphasize on the problems that encountered by an individual in their own like unique cases and experience. What it really means is, or what I'm really trying to touch on is a lot of the time, what we call a diagnosis is kind of like a syndrome. It's like a collection of different symptoms and presentation. And we kind of lumped it into one term, like chronic fatigue. We also talked about back pain before, IBS, personality disorder. It's a collection of things. But actually, most of the time, at the individual and unique experience is really unique and is not like no two person really experience the same thing. Now, as an ex-obstetrician and now psychiatrist, I haven't dealt with many high blood pressure, I have to say. I haven't really, it's not my forte. But as an ex-obstetrician, I have done, I've dealt with a lot of preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure during pregnancy. And I have to say, even in my few years of experience, no two women's preeclampsia is always the same. I mean, it's another syndrome where we don't really know the cause of it. Some, most of the time we suggest it's from the placenta, but again, sometimes the placenta is healthy and the women still have preeclampsia, so we don't know why. Sometimes a woman come in with headaches. Sometimes there's no even high blood pressure. Sometimes just the kidneys failing and the proteins in the urine. Sometimes they even have seizure or sometimes they're completely asymptomatic. And I've seen a whole range of, what and how it can present and the combination of them. And I think as Colin said, actually there is power and there is better solution in some way to treat each individual basis and symptoms on their own. So maybe sometimes I don't know what this may be. It looks like and feels like preeclampsia. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the main thing is there's problem with the blood pressure or there's problem with the baby. Let's deal with those targetedly. And I think, I think that's what I kind of learned over the years 
um, of my practicing. And I think this is probably going to be the theme of today's <laughs> webinar from my side. I'm going to kind of walk you through my journey of being a doctor so far in the last few years. It's kind of what, what I've learned and experienced since trying to grasp all the knowledge I can get in medical school and be more certain and more firm. And I remember it's very beautifully reflected in Colin. We're recently doing our pathology training course in, in, in our training. And one of our colleagues, one of my colleagues was saying, um, because she had to do all these research on medical syndrome condition. And it's actually quite fascinating to hear all the presentation where we all think there's so much advance in Western medicine. Actually, so much of the causes of these syndromes and disease are still unknown. But sometimes I think maybe there's comfort in that too. Maybe one, there's always knowledge out there and knowing our own limits is actually a good thing not to be too hubris. And two, I think knowing that, yes, maybe we don't know the exact cause, but we can help is another helpful thing. I don't know, am I bringing this to a really weird direction, Colin? No, no not at all. Um, it reminds me of a... a an old jazz song which is the more you know the more you know you don't know you know it's a yeah it, it's it's a it's it's a very interesting thing you've you've touched on something quite beautiful actually which is this this list of symptoms um which in themselves are, are identification so a symptom is an identification you know i have a a direct you know i'm feeling low i'm feeling a, is, is a direct experience, is a symptom of something, and a collection of symptoms come together to be then categorized, and we can then plot a pathway of an evolution of a disease. And sometimes we have a collection of symptoms, but we don't, they don't sort of fit under a category, so we don't know how to classify it, we don't know how it is. So, as I was discussing before, is that in yoga, we are looking to understand how we construct through different variations of direct experience, inference, and referencing, and how those affect the actual psychology of the person we're working with. Some people classify because they have a direct experience. You know, they say, I don't feel right. I don't know what it is, but I don't feel right. You know, and, and this is called Vyadi in Sanskrit. Vyadi means vya d is that there's a separation with oneself we feel separated from ourselves. so there's like an illness the opposite of is some is samadhi and feel very integrated into myself so the first is we have an experience where i don't feel right i feel separated from myself but that takes into account that we have some awareness and some experience of ourselves in the first place to actually have that feeling so quite often someone else looks at us and makes an inference you're looking a bit peaky. You're looking a little, a little green or a little yellow. You're like, oh, I feel absolutely fine. You know, because we actually are so separated from ourselves, but we can't actually feel ourselves. So we don't actually know how we feel about something. There's a kind of like a separation in a way. So someone else can sort of infer that we're not looking too good. And quite often this means that we've got to a stage where it becomes very obvious it comes actually to the surface and inference is kind of interesting because it 
in one way, we can know that something's wrong with us. But in another way, it's not obvious to someone else. Like we could turn around and say, look, I just don't feel that good. I, I you know, something's up. And can I have some tests about this, this, and this? Someone will say, well, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, you, you're, everything seems to be okay. And so the way that inference and direct experience come together as part of a diagnostic tool are kind of interesting, very interesting, because there are so many variables of don't know within the whole thing. And the next thing is that we're looking at who we look as reference points. We look to our doctors, like my colleague, Dr. Stanford Wong, the professionals we look at, the specialists we look at. And almost in a way that this paradigm has changed a lot because of our relationship with who we trust as a source or a resource or authority that we think we can call upon that is correct and that can actually guide us to a root of knowledge. And quite often there's an imbalance within this as well. I think um, we've got something saying in, in yoga and Ayurveda is that if someone comes to you for help and they say they know more about the condition that you do, then you actually can't help them. So sometimes you get this, it's, it's really bizarre, but sometimes or someone will come to you and almost in a way they'll present a condition. And But what they'll do is they will have researched it to the nth degree and they'll be so involved in it that actually it, it's just, you can't, that, that there isn't the right kind of dynamic for you to actually help them. They're so, so into the condition. I don't know if that makes any sense, Tamford. Um, and you've seen that within, so I've seen it quite a bit in some of the psychological um, conditions that I've worked with. But who we take as our references and who we trust becomes quite important as part of the process of looking at knowing and not knowing. And sometimes we look to people to know, we put faith in them to know, and we trust them to know. And actually, as Stanford said, it's really powerful when that person that we trust turns around and goes, I don't know. And they're comfortable with it. And if they're comfortable with it, almost it makes us feel comfortable with it. But if they're uncomfortable with it, or if they actually kind of sit there and go, well, it must be this, this and this, of course, it must be that. And we realize that it doesn't kind of fit in the right way. We start to, there's a break in the process of trust. And so for me, one of the first steps in working with not knowing is the basis of looking at what we believe in, what we trust, and how we can keep our confidence as part of a process of going through to come to terms with the fact that we may never know. Stanford. I like about your talk on inference, because as, as you were talking about that, I'm thinking about how the patients actually sometimes present in the clinic room or in the theater about their treatments because a lot of the time they they come from a place of not knowing and wanting help and then they will say i've read about this on the internet or some so and so have said that this treatment works for them and it will be good and things like that and 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 i see that as a willingness to identify and to be identified along with someone else like another group like i almost felt like i belong to this group this treatment will work for me and it's that identif and then identification sorry I'm, i don't know why i'm stuttering identification that you're talking about and then but at the same time there are 
the patients where they were like, yes, I know this treatment worked for everyone else, but I tried it. It doesn't work for me. It absolutely does not work for me. Like there's no way it worked for me. This side effect that you say will never happen, happened to me and there's no effect whatsoever. And that's this willingness to be unique and want to not be identified with a group or with a big group of people. And the interesting thing is, it often more, more often than not, I present the same patients, just at a slightly different stage. And, and I get, what you talked about, the reference point is, it, it does shift. Like how we know things and don't know things shift all the time. And sometimes my clients or patients know more than I do. Sometimes they pretend they don't know more than I do. And sometimes they really didn't know as much as I do, or maybe we know the same amount. But what I, what I found in a good way of practicing, I agree with you, but maybe I don't have as much experience as you, Colin. I sometimes find patients who come in really well researched and rehearsed, and more often than not, they are very well researched and rehearsed nowadays. Actually, especially in the therapy setting, I find it's actually quite comforting to let them lead what they need out of those sessions they often and I think I've learned this from you as well not only from CBT techniques I learned it from you Colin where the patients or the clients is telling us everything they need like they're telling us the diagnosis they're telling us what's wrong they're telling us what they need and all you need to do is just actually listen and kind of follow their lead and it does work and I'll give an example like today where I had the supervision um from a different setting where a colleague was presenting. He's seeing, seeing a case where there's language barrier, the young person is a recent immigrant, having a lot of isolation, not only in the family, because obviously they have to work very, very hard to sustain living. She have a lot of isolation from the school, from the community, because she's not from England and not from the area. And uh, she doesn't feel that she's getting the support that she needs. And Again, I wasn't in the clinic room, so I don't really know what she's really asking uh, in terms of help. But my colleague is very active and very enthusiastic and suggests, uh, why don't you go to the school um, after school club? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? I can offer this. I can do this for you. And I remember me and the other colleagues who were listening in and thinking, he's so good. He's so enthusiastic and caring and loving. But at the same time, we can't help but have but have the feeling that maybe he's a little bit over inputting in the sessions like he's not allowing the the patient to come through and do what she actually needed to have and do what she needed to do and he's putting more of his his self and agenda and idea forward and I think psychologically that's very interesting because I know Colin probably can say more about this than I do but Behavior feeds into feeling, feeds into thoughts, and they kind of, the free constant keep going around and around, and that's kind of the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy, CPT. So when, when in a therapeutic setting, if you let, or I let my thoughts come in a bit more in the sessions, or I let my behavior and my feeling come in a bit more in the sessions, then by proportion, then my patients will have less. And that's actually less chance and less room for them to go through their cycle of behavior, thoughts and feeling and hopefully find somewhere resolution out of it. So I think sometimes the, 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 the empowering thing about not knowing both in myself and the patient is actually if I'm willing to admit that I don't know, I'm just being guided by the patients and see how it goes, is actually it may give more room 
more room for change and more room maybe for improvement. Colin? I really like what you just said then, because it, it for me, it sums up the journey that all of us have to go through quite well, which is actually, you, you know, when you've got someone that comes in and they, I'll call it a story, they give their story to you. And the story is something they very, very strongly believe in. We've talked about belief already today. So they believe in their story very strongly indeed. And they justify different aspects of the story. So, and sometimes what happens is that they're looking for you to make suggestions. And it's important that actually you don't, in, which is what you said, Stanford. Because the story itself is constructed because someone doesn't know. And one of the jobs of a therapist when you're working in this environment is to pose the right question so that the story changes based on the answer from the person. And that gets the person to then question the cycle of the story that has been going on again and again and again. So you're completely, I, I like what you've been saying because actually to create that space is hugely important. To have that space in a safe space so that the person feels safe and secure enough to question their story and the possibility of changing the pattern of behavior and feeling and how the intervention is put in by the therapist becomes important because this is the flip between knowing and not knowing. And often it's the knowing not knowing comes from within the person, not from outside the person because it's their perception. And quite often just posing the right question at the right time can help to break the cycle of a story and help to get someone on, on a different track. I don't know if that makes any sense, Dan, but it's a beautiful, what you said was very beautiful indeed. Yeah, I uh, thank you. I, I just think that sometimes maybe if at that point you want to say, actually, I know, and I can tell you the reason, you kind of stop the other person from progressing in their own speed. You want them to go through go through the journey themselves. And I, I can relate, to, bring it back a little bit to the, the other topic that we were talking about before, like trauma, when trauma represses a lot of things and kind of sometimes your body and your mind get frozen at a certain point of time and it's hard to, it makes things hard to access. And we said last time as well, we all have not small amounts of trauma within us. And sometimes that process of digging and, and recovering and letting things resurface it has to happen on, on its own. And I think someone else coming in to do the digging for you actually really is not helpful. Need to be quite, quite gentle with it, like Colin always says. I, I would agree because if, see what we're talking about now is, is for me, there's, there's three different routes that a, a yoga therapist um, needs to know. The first is, the yoga direction, the root of yoga. Um, and this yoga deals with what's possible to experience within the world. So what is it actually possible to genuinely experience? The next route is the root of questioning oneself. This is the root of Sankhya Karaka. How does one question oneself? And how does one evolve through the questioning of oneself? 
Then we have the root of the Bhagavad Gita. It's where do we, what do we look as signs and roots of authority? And how do we learn from those signs and roots? So for me, there are all these different resources. And, and why they become very important is that all of them actually deal with the idea that we actually don't know ourselves. And what is deep inside of us is actually the cause and what we see on the surface is the effect but we are so attached to the effect on the surface that we don't actually know the cause underneath and the process given within each of these different texts is a beautiful root it's a root concerned with unraveling and revealing the clarity of what is unknown beneath us. Yeah, and to have the space and patience for that process is important. What you just said, I remind me of a client that I've worked with some time before where I think we we're focusing on her anxiety. There, yeah, there was mainly anxiety issues and that's a strong sense of, not deserving as well because she was having a very good life married with beautiful children really really successful and she could always say how she has more success than peers of her own age but there's a strong sense of not deserving and we were working kind of especially on that anxiety and and it almost like a performance or social anxiety and I remember there was at one point in our therapy sessions where after some relaxation technique and things to help her through she, she suddenly just stopped halfway and just said yeah I just remember what you told you know what what we're doing reminded me sometimes when I, if I do when I, if I feel anxious I just put some more pressure onto my chest around my throat and it really calms me down and really give me a sense of security and calmness and I like doing that why is that and I remember sitting there it's like I'm not sure like what, what how does it feel when you do that like oh when was the first time you remember having that sensation or doing that action and she couldn't remember herself and I remember in my head like I may have hypothesis but it's probably smarter of me if I don't share if I don't pretend that I like this is the route I can go for it's like maybe it'll be a better option if I do that I remember a small voice in my head saying that I was like okay and I kind of gone down that route it's like yeah I'm not sure but we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of explore together and to see why it may be the case um I didn't ask her to use that action much more than she needs to but I, I that always stuck with me it's like I'm not sure what hypothesis I really have in my head and if they're right or not but I remember actually letting her and now what you're saying Colin giving her the space to actually just keep asking herself because I, I now thinking about it, that question worry wasn't really aimed for me. That was aimed for herself. Like, why do I feel more reassured when I put my hands around my chest and my throat? I don't. I don't think she expected me to have the answer. I don't expect myself to have the answer, <laughs> and possibly don't expect her to find the answer. But I think her finding the answer is important. And um, I mean, I've probably been partly slating Western medicine a little bit <laughs> after session, which I do that sometime but actually I, I really like how especially now psychiatry and more and more the psychiatric side of 
well-being has come through in recent studies and focus and NHS on nice guideline as well. Because now more and more like psychosomatic and somatoform syndrome has been recognized. So just in case, I'm sure you all know, but just in case, it, these are symptoms where we recognize the cause is much deeper. It's more psychiatric or mental health related or sometimes emotional related. And they manifest it as a physical symptom. So psycho and somatic, which is physical side. And we recognize that um, saying that th these are real things because these will be patients, I don't know, 15, 100 years ago, for, sorry, 50 to 100 years ago being called crazy. There's nothing wrong. We couldn't find anything at all. There's nothing on the scan. There's nothing in your blood test. There's nothing in the biopsy. But now we actually do recognize, yes, they, they are a real thing too, just because we can't see it under the microscope. We can't see it in the electrophoresis or whatever tests we're doing. They are real because you are having that experience. And once again, just like everything else, no two person psychosomatic presentation will be the same, but that journey of actually, I don't know why you feel comforting putting your hands on the chest, but finding out and just maybe I'm just here to help you start the journey. I may not be the one who continue with it is actually quite helpful. Colin? Well, I think also, what you just said is very powerful because it's something that I fall back on quite a lot. You know, I ask people to use sesame oil quite a lot. And they say to me, well, I say, we've got aches in your joints. You know, just put sesame oil over the joints. And they say, well, how does it work? I don't know how it works, but it works. And I think that's the most acceptable thing because I'm sure that I could come up with a whole list of things to say like, well, the absorption of the molecules will actually affect the fat tissues within the actual joint itself. And it would, you know, help. but I don't know this. None of us know this. We just know it works. And I think the, the power between, because there's a power and there's a power, and a power is a very interesting word because there's a power between knowing and not knowing and how we shift the power in terms of the balance of power between not knowing and not knowing is, is kind of interesting. So, because yoga is concerned with clarity and clarity is the shift of power between not knowing and knowing. And it's not knowing as in not knowing is, is, is a very deep not knowing. It's not as in, I, I can't Google the answer to that. It's actually, we just don't know. And knowing is a, is a, is a, is a thing where, actually you can't really quantify it, but you just know it. It's, it's a very deep sort of knowing. And so yoga is concerned with this clarity. It is clarity in what we do, so the activities that we do, and also having a healthy relationship with ourselves. So it's concerned with that too. Um, and both of these are based on knowing, but and, and in both situations, the power is created by coming to terms with knowing what we don't know. And this takes a power away from an unknown cause because the more I attach onto the unknown cause, the more power I actually give it. So it's, it's almost that what yoga is doing is it's, it's, it's got the capacity for you to take power away from the actual unknown cause itself.
and I think from my personal point of view and, and I kind of going along with what you said as well I think yes unknown is very scary and it's not comforting because it is the opposite of what I said or what we said in the beginning where categorizing things is comforting it provides safety and provide boundaries so we know what we're dealing with so unknown is by definition uncomfortable but if we can or if I can <laughs> uh, sit with the uncomfort or discomfort of not knowing it also allow me to be curious and keep asking questions and keep finding out what's um maybe finding out more knowledge sometimes it may be helpful maybe unhelpfully and it, sometimes it's interesting because um what you were saying earlier on about sesame seed oil i'm thinking oh yeah that's true you never we can never really explain why but sometimes things do explain why like the western medicine often asks why the Chinese medicine doesn't always work. You know, the herbal medicine that like really, really black and often quite bitter and a little bit uh, astringent liquid. Sometimes it works really, really well for some patients. I have definitely quite a few that I think is really, really working, but sometimes it worked absolutely nothing at all. And then we always say, well, they're herbal medicine. They're kind of like the roots of where Western medicine come from. You know, you boil and this and this time and adding this catalyst and creative thing. But sometimes, yeah, I don't know why, inexplicably, it doesn't work. Apparently, reason research actually, because people keep asking questions why it doesn't work, they do this research and found some really, really ancient Chinese medicine doctors where they actually point out something very simple. Chinese um, medicine ingredients like the gouji berry, that, you know, the superfood that we branded recently, some of the time, if they come from certain region of China or wherever it is, they have more of a medicinal quality of it because obviously they come from a different soil, different climates, different rain, different, uh, I don't know, shelter, whatever it may be, and they harvest it differently. So they have a different quality to them. So obviously those ones may work a bit more because they have a high concentration of whatever it may be. And if you harvest it any other way or farm it any other way, it work less. I was like, oh, that's quite interesting and liberating. One, because it's a talk about food and always a big fan of that. And talking about how actually, you know, harvesting and farming ethically and, you know, keeping sustainable resources is a great thing. But also at the same time, kind of tell me, actually, yes, you have to have the right balance of everything in order for things to work. You, you can't just use the same recipe and same formula everywhere and expect it to work. And I think at least that piece of knowledge was coming from not knowing and someone's curiosity to keep asking that question. So yeah, I think that's definitely a lot of power in that. Hmm. Well, just checking on this one. Um, the, the interesting thing for me is the, the variable journey that we need to take. There's a, an interesting sutra in Yoga Sutra um, in the third chapter. And it says, um, we may be able to know the cause of something, but we may never know the cause of the cause. And I find that this very, very interesting idea. 
because almost in a way it's telling us that sometimes sometimes we need to stop wasting our time sometimes actually looking for the cause of a cause of a cause can actually just consume our time and stop us from actually living and for me the quality of life and the journey to get a good quality of life becomes hugely important when causes are unknown we can spend a long time a huge amount of time looking for a cause but actually the energy spent on that and the power spent on looking for that detracts from actually being able to live life and so almost that the model set up within yoga is quite clever because it, it's it's sending each of us on a variable journey like Stanford just said is that each of us is a unique constitution each of our journeys is unique because each of our patterning is unique and our situation is unique and so each of us needs to go on a different journey to come to terms with an unknown cause. And each of us have unknown causes that influence our lives in lots of ways. And that journey is one that's deep within us. And often we can't label and we can't identify many things. However, we can almost in a way know something through the experiences that we have. I don't know if this makes any sense, Sanford. It's one of my... It does, as well as your alarm that's just gone off. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think... <laughs> actually, it wasn't an alarm. It was actually someone going to me, can you bring tea? Okay. And we will never know who that person is. <laughs> and I was just going to say, very similarly, idiopathic syndromes or disease, a lot of the time is also diagnosis of exclusion. I think I shared it either before here or in our training, where these are things like, like IBS, um, like chronic fatigue, they're often kind of like the last holding diagnosis that people give. Hmm. Once they exclude everything else, like anemia or hypothyroidism in chronic fatigue and like Crohn's disease, celiac disease in IBS. So these are like sometimes what we call the holding diagnosis. Hmm. But also, just like you said, in, in, in our behavior, maybe sometimes whenever we experience the symptoms, we want to exclude things like it's not cancer. Great. It's not something that is, you know, going to kill us straight away. Great. It's not a really traumatic thing right now. Great. And then what we're left with is this is a particular symptoms that we have to deal with, have to live with and have to learn to have a good relationship with, meaning whenever it's stronger, how are we can combat that and how to make it a little bit <laughs> less, how, how, how it is a little bit less sometimes and how do we make it better and enjoy our time even more. And I think that's really, really good that we can just harvest that time and energy away from constantly focusing and researching, web searching, <laughs> what one diagnosis is. Just like Lauren's mom said, it's not cancer, it's fine. <laughs> and I agree. Yeah. This, is, this is the interesting thing because you can see how imagination and memory, memory com combine with this too. How when we get a situation, we jump to an extreme. Is it this, is it that, is it the other? So we're back to the case I started discussing at the very beginning. 
However, for me, the first step is when we have something that's unknown is that we need to be very clear with the symptoms, first of all, what the reality is. And so for me, it's stripping away the imagination and the fear. And when I strip these away, it's like, you know, it's like, well, it's not cancer. It's not this. It's not that. It's not the other. And actually, that becomes very helpful because it gives us a very fixed reality. What are the symptoms? Can we actually accept the symptoms that we've got? And can we begin to unravel the patterns that have got us to where we are? So there is a hereditary pattern in the body. There's one in the mind. And also to understand how these patterns are working, how they link to the way that we interact with ourselves and how they provide us with an opportunity to understanding our reality of symptoms better, for me, is one of the first steps of of looking at with this. So yoga is looking at us as a series of patterns, a series of cycles. So the body has its patterns and cycles. The mind has its patterns and cycles. And it's because yoga looks at it in this way and it looks at it as a variable, it means that sometimes we don't know what a cause of something is, but we know how to work with a symptom. We know that with the symptom, we can pacify it, if that's possible. If we can't pacify it, we can come to terms with it in a different way. Yes, and I think from Western medicine point of view, I kind of already laboring on the points a few times already, is finding out and making sure that's not the worst case scenario, like Colin says, making sure that the worst nightmare isn't actually a reality and then see what is actually your experience of the medical condition or illness or syndrome may be. And yes, finding the label can be comforting. Finding the label can, for a short period of time, reassure you knowing that you haven't gone crazy, that something actually happening. Um, that is possibility of help out there because if that's a medical condition, there's often the support group, there's often the webpage on nice guideline on nhs.net or wherever it is, NHS UK, sorry. Mm. But also at the same time, understand that even if you have the same diagnosis, like same diabetes, hypertension, dementia diagnosis, knowing that your collection of symptoms and experience and presentation will more often than not be very, very unique. And whatever profession that help you have a lot of experience helping other people with similar presentation, but you will be the first one of your own kind and have to be able to embrace to go on to that journey of discovering more and more about the unknown and also be happy to never reach the end, never reach the last, I don't know, Pringle in in the box sometimes and be comfortable with that. I think that will be usually have better results from my experience, or at least so far. Uh, it, uh, and I feel the same way because it, 
often we can know the triggers for things. So if you take, um, let's say, an eating disorder, you can know the triggers for those things, but you may not know the cause, the underlying cause for a lot of things that occur. So you can understand triggers. You can begin to understand an emotion. You can understand the excuses we create. We can understand the distraction techniques that we use. But to really know the cause, sometimes it will never be known. And it also poses the question for me, our relationship with this little voice that says, why? Why is this? Why is that? This kind of voice of curiosity and the need to know. And in one way, it's an expansive, creative driving force. In another way, it killed the cat. So it, it, it means that this relationship with why has to be a healthy relationship. And I think to break down, in a way, working with not knowing and causes unknown, to break down what's involved, how helpful is it, what is possible to know, do we know the reality of something? And to understand that it's human, very human to have all of the thoughts and feelings that we have around not knowing, it's a very powerful thing because yoga is saying that we have a 24 hour battle with not knowing. And the more we're comfortable with not knowing, the more powerful and open we are to know. So it's a kind of like a strange relationship. And does that make any sense? It's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a very interesting thing because it, it is a, it's very, it's a human thing. And I think it's very empowering to kind of go, this is actually completely normal. And I think it's really empowering. And also I think the more we're comfortable with not knowing, the more we have space. I was just going to say, make total sense. And I'm loving the conclusion for tonight's talk will be be comfortable of not knowing and don't let curiosity kill the cat. Yeah. And, the, and you may know the cause, but you may never know the cause of the cause. Absolutely. Stanford, I, I can't believe we've just... <laughs> I don't know. How... I don't know how it happened. <laughs> um, Sorry for the pun. But, but for me, there's a, a, a number of things that we've covered that are very interesting. And I think it's that every time we go through and we have symptoms and conditions, there is something within each of us that wants to know. But we also have to come to terms with, actually, we may never know. And so this sort of relationship between knowing and not knowing is part of the whole existence of being human. And it doesn't mean that we're not perfect. And it doesn't mean that we are perfect. It means that actually there is no such thing as perfection with, and there is no such thing as we will know everything. It is quite impossible, humanly impossible. <laughs> Cool. Thank you so much for this evening. I really, really appreciate you spending time with you. You too, as always. Thank you so much, 
as well and look forward to the next one which is fee is for vitality i think vitality mm-hmm. i have to bring more energy to the show now <laughs> v for vitality okay i'll see you in a few weeks then absolutely see you Brilliant. take care thank you so much guys thank you